All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuck is going on? Okay. You can let your kids listen now. I hope your commute's going well. Your bike ride's going well. If you're swimming and listening, that's interesting. Perhaps you're in the shower, in the bathroom, or cleaning something. I hope it's all going all right. And thank you for listening to my show in your cubicle, trying to look like you're working. Glad to be here. Today on the show, the amazing Annie Baker is here. Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of The Flick which is currently running at the Barrow Street Theater in New York. I saw her other play, John, a big fan of hers. And I believe this marks the first time we've had a playwright on the show. Also, Australia, not excited about flying there. It's going to happen. I'm coming. I'll be, when you're listening to this, I may be suspended in the air, moving fast over water, a lot of water. Not my favorite thing. Don't know. I Look, it's going to be what it's going to be. I'm going to get there. We've made some, uh, We like it looks like Sydney and Melbourne are okay with the ticket sales. Should be about a thousand or so folks at each one. You can still get tickets. You can go to WTFpod.com slash calendar for tickets. Brisbane, we've accommodated the lack of ticket sales by moving to a smaller venue right within the same structure. So you don't have to do anything too extreme, but uh, it'll be nice. It'll be better. It's going to be okay. It's better than canceling. Looking forward to being there. I'm going to be funny. I'll probably be tired, loopy. I will not have a clear idea of where I am or what my body clock is doing, but uh, maybe something interesting will come out of that. Maybe I'll have an emotional meltdown on stage in Australia. God knows I've done it before, but that was decades ago. It'll be compelling. Might not be the show you expect, but we'll make something of it. Won't we, Australia? I believe we will. I had a therapist back in San Francisco when I lived there in the early 90s, a guy named Jonathan Rosenfeld. And I, I've quoted him here before. Uh, he once said to me that, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but I never forgot it. He said, there's no such thing as boredom, only fear. And that thing is sort of, I've kind of like uh, rolled that around in my mental mouth for a long time, you know, kind of sucked on that with my brain for a while. And it's always up there. And, it, and I thought it was very... Um, provocative and uh insightful so somebody had told him that i had said that or i'd quoted him on the show and he reached out to me through uh the direct message function on twitter we were actually able to have dinner the other night he was here in la on business i hadn't seen him in over 20 years really it's probably been that long and when i was seeing him as a therapist he was just this just uh you know working on his phd seemed like a fairly uh, uh a bit of a dark dude i felt like we had common things uh we shared a, a disposition but maybe that was just part of him enabling me uh, the uh, the benefit of transference for the sake of uh, of therapy. So it was kind of weird to see this man who, uh, who was my therapist, not that much older than me so many years later. And he's sort of gone beyond therapy, did a lot of work with family therapy and setting up a new style of family therapy practices over the years. But this is the thing. This is the thing. After we talk for a while, he tells me that meditation changed his life. And I've heard this a few times and it's not specific. It's not, you know, it doesn't need to have a label in terms of, you know, what brand of meditation, but meditation as a practice changed his brain, changed his life. So I downloaded a meditation app and uh, maybe I'll get to that. I know it's just about breathing and sitting still and turning off your brain. I think I'm capable of that. My intellectual brain doesn't think there's any benefit to it, 
but why not just try it? I think I've tried it a few times in my life, but I'm really hearing some good shit about this. So look forward to that. The possibility of a meditated Mark Marin. How is that even fucking possible? Jesus, man. Look, here we go. Let's talk about this. About the um, the Lauren Michaels interview, looking for a some sort of uh, closure or or acknowledgement, justice, whatever it may be. I realize some of you are are new to the show, and you you might not understand why having Lauren Michaels uh, as a guest on my show or me talking to Lauren Michaels is as important as it seems to be. Here's the deal. Almost since the start of this show, I've talked about the SNL audition I had with Lorne. All right. This was like 1994, 95. It played a big role in my psyche and it served as a point of connection for me and a lot of people that I've had on this show. And what I mean by that is I've had a lot of people who have been on SNL or have auditioned for SNL. And I am constantly looking for information about Lauren Michaels. I had this one meeting with him so many years ago, and it's defined my entire sense of the man. And I'm looking to put him together as a human being through the stories of others. And I'm always looking for bad things. I'd like to sort of hang a certain amount of evil and sensitivity on the man or, or at worst, a bit of a mind fucking. This has been hanging over me for decades. And the first time I talked about it, it was all the way back in episode 45 of this show of WTF. I told the Lorne Michaels audition story for the first time at the urging of my guest, one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, Matt Walsh. And this is a clip of Matt provoking me to tell the story that has become sort of an obsession and a signature and a underlying theme of the duration of this podcast. So this is Matt Walsh and myself on episode 45 of WTF. You have a great Lauren Michael story. Oh, God. Have you told it on air? I don't know if I've told it here. Do a quick tell, just real quick. That's one of my favorite stories of yours. I'm pimping the host. But. Oh, okay. So what happens is, you know, I, I audition for SNL. They make me jump through a few hoops. He, you know, it's one, Marcy Klein sees me do stand-up, and then she wants to see me again. She brings Lauren to the comic strip. He sits there and watches me do stand-up, and then they take me to the studio. It was Conan's studio, actually, and do a screen test with me, and then I have a meeting the with meeting, Lauren. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing about the meeting with Lauren, at that time, I was smoking a lot of pot, and I was reading one of Bruce Wagner's books, you know, and he writes about Hollywood. And I was really sitting there because you sit for hours. And it was just me and Tracy Morgan, who, had, who because it was he was meeting Lauren that day, too. And his hair was so shiny. Like, you know, like he looked, you know, like it, it was like perfect. Like gelled or? Yeah, it yeah. was just like a perfect, you know, black natural fro and just glistening. Now, was this as a writer or performer? Performer, Performer, right. The idea was that they were going to, you know, use me on update. You know, because Norm was on the fence or something. But I'm reading this book and I'm high. I'm a little high because I could not not be high for some reason. You know how you do that when you smoke pot? You're like, you know, I smoke pot pretty much every day. But I don't want to smoke a lot today because I got this meeting. But if I smoke now, I still got three hours, you know. To come down. Yeah, that shit. To level off. So I'm a little high. I'm reading Bruce Wagner's I'm Losing You or something. And, and it's all dark and weird and about Hollywood. And, and now I, I can't tell the difference between the book and, and what's happening with me a little bit. And I waited like three hours. And I go in to see Lauren. And he's sitting behind his desk. And Higgins is there, the head writer. And uh, 
there's a, a picture on his desk, you know, pictures. And then, like, on my side of his desk is a bowl of candies. And he sits me down and he goes, literally, like, one of the first things, it was when we were doing, I think, Luna at the beginning of Luna. And there had been press on it in the New York Times. And Lauren says, you know, I don't know what you think you're doing down there below 14th Street, but it really doesn't matter. And I'm like, hey, okay, how you doing, you know? And and then all of a sudden, Lauren just, you know, stops talking and starts looking at me right in the eyes. And I'm looking at him, and Higgins is actually like, what the fuck's going on? He goes, you can tell a lot by a person's eyes by looking into oh, them, you know? So it was really fucking weird. You know, and I start talking about the original SNL, like, ah, I was a big fan. He goes, well, there's been plenty of good casts. You know, that was not the best one. And I'm like, wow, this is not going well. And I keep looking at this candy, you know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm a little high and this is weird as fuck. And then he, and then he, like, he sits back, you know, and he does this sort of pondering thing. He's like, you know, comedians are like monkeys. <laughs> you know, when people go to the zoo, they look like the lion because it's scary and the bear is intense, but the monkey makes people laugh. So I said, you know, as long as they're not throwing shit at you. And he just, like, looks over. You know, he doesn't do anything. And then, like, I, I reached for a candy, for Jolly Roger candy. It was Jolly Roger. And I go down, like, I reach the candy, I take it up, I unwrap it. And right when the rapper starts unwrapping, Lauren shoots a look at, at the writer, at Higgins. Like, it had been decided. Like, that candy was somehow connected to my that was not the getting... moment and you felt that was real like you kind of uh, well, I, I believe that i was a little high but yeah. like i had somehow failed the test like it was all hinging on the jolly roger candy yeah and i left there just completely mind fucked and you know they left me dangling for weeks but i in retrospect from what i understand i was just being used to uh, to to scare norm oh really yeah but i believe i like to believe that if you didn't take the candy you would be on snl today that's a better story <laughs> Now, that story has remained very consistent in my mind over the years, with the exception of the fact that I meant to say Jolly Ranchers and not Jolly Rogers. What is Jolly Roger? Jolly Ranchers. That was what I was trying to say. And the, the fact is, I, I, I guess I've always wondered what it would mean if I got some answers about that story. Now, obviously, there's a little paranoia working. Maybe. I don't know. It's been very easy all these years to give Warren Michaels this sort of Buddha slash sorcerer slash mythological power because all I've had to do is think about it. My life could have gone in a completely different direction had it gone the other way. So there, there was a different periods of obsessing about it and wondering about it and reading the mystical implications, the things that transcended coincidence into almost magic. And now the thing is, now that I have these answers... Do I want to share them? Because, uh, as I said, this this is a this is an arc, man. In my life, on this show, you know what happens after that. What happens after I share them? Okay, well, I'll, uh, we'll see what happens, folks. Okay, we'll see what happens. Okay, so now Annie Baker, I'll tell you, man, her plays blew me away. I saw both of them. Uh, I was turned on to her uh, by uh, Scott Rudin, 
who sent the show an email. And it's my understanding, if I understand Hollywood history, if Scott Rudin sends you an email or perhaps would like you to do something, it might behoove you to look into what he's asking you to do. And I was blown away. He was right. Uh, Annie Baker is a phenomenal talent. And I, I saw both plays that I could, The Flick and John, uh, when I was in New York with Brendan McDonald. Uh, and I was, uh, I was, I, I, I loved both of them. And so it was a really exciting thing for me to talk to a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright who is uh, not what I expected. It's interesting because plays can be very cryptic and very abstract. And her plays are, are no different than that, where you, you sort of wonder, like, why decide to do it this way? Or where did that come from? You know, how do you know when something like this is done? So it was very exciting for me to talk to a, a playwright. And it was even more exciting that that playwright was Annie Baker. So this is me talking to Annie Baker in New York City. I went to the shows. Scott Rudin reached out to me personally, which is scary. I don't know what your experience with him, but for me, I don't know him. Yeah. Then I got an email from Scott Rudin saying, you know. Yeah, it's sort of titillating and scary to see his right. name in your sure, inbox. Sure, sure. Like, what yeah. I do, is this the end? Yeah. Wait, I there's nothing. He can't hurt me. Yeah. Or maybe it's my big break. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're yeah. like, maybe he's going to cast me in a movie. No, I, I think I'm that I think that boat sailed for me. But um, but he was in sort of excited for me and you to talk. And then he sent me uh, a bunch of your plays with a little card. I think it said um, compliments of Scott Rudin, like a card. Oh, yeah, I got I've gotten one of those. Yeah. It's really exciting. It kind of is. Yeah. But if it weren't for Scott Rudin. I can't Rudin, believe he sent you my plays. Yeah, no, I, I need. Crazy. Wow, okay. How did he find you? What's your relationship with him? Because like, because of him, I saw your plays and I'm aware of you. I, I'm not, you know, I don't live in New York. I'm not a huge theater head, so I wouldn't have known. Right. So how'd you meet Scott Rudin? I'm trying to remember how I'm, I think he is sort of like an all-seeing eye. And I, like, I think my second or third play in New York, which was actually like a tiny play with like, um, 75 seat audience and like the West it? Village and like a church. Um, it was at this place called the Rattlestick Playwrights Theater and it ran for like four weeks and like yeah. could barely people fit people into the theater but he like somehow saw, you know, he saw it because he's Scott Rudin right. and then called me in for a meeting and then I've sort of known him ever since. So you went in for the meeting? Yeah. And was it scary? Were you like intimidated? Were you like whatever? No. I, no, I... I'm actually like I I'm not when I'm not being recorded I'm yeah. weirdly not that nervous or intimidated by people. Uh -huh. There is something I'm like more it's like I'm I'm way more scared of like being permanently recorded as as an idiot but like just be like being witnessed as an idiot for one afternoon by Scott Rudin. Right. Wasn't so bad. Yeah. He was like would you ever let me make a movie? A that, movie that was the first pitch of that play Which he was one? like would you the ever be in? this was my play the aliens uh -huh. and i said no and then he was like okay and we sort of eyed each other and then we've had a relationship ever since but i he's so smart he's like the smartest yeah he's done some great stuff he's the smartest producer out and there i think what was the aliens about the aliens was about um kind of the town i grew up in and all the um weird bearded guys who would sort of like hang out near the trash cans where I grew up and and um it's like the townies for lack of a better Where'd word you grow up? Amherst Massachusetts oh yeah so it's like it's like a college town yeah 
in Western Massachusetts, and it's like a lot of there. It's like it's a weird mix of people, and there are a lot of like guys in sweatpants with guitars, the and ones that beards sort of like, who are sort of like pseudo homeless, yeah, um, but collegey somehow. But a There's little a coll- collegey yeah, homeless, yeah, collegey homeless who like came to this town because it was like a fun place to right, be, right? Um, and there was. There's like huge, there's like a big heroin problem in Vermont and Western Massachusetts right now. And I was interested in writing about that. Jay Maskus is from there. You guys buddies? Oh, no. Right. He's from Northampton. But he, like I was. His dad was a dentist. His dad was a dentist in Northampton. But I, that was, he was just like the cool, awesome story when I was a teenager. I was like, maybe you could become Jay Maskus. Like there's like a few people from that area. So you sort of, you were, you were, you were not a mainstream person. You were already from the get go. Yeah, I was pr- I was like artier than I am now. Oh, I was I'm like sure. I was like all the way. I like you know I was lonely and sad and I didn't have anything to do. Small so town. I was like yeah. So I was like crazy arty and like angry, and, and you're I thought I was smarter than everybody else because you were surrounded by college kids too. So you could be that person, right? Yeah, a little. And I just like I don't know. You, there's really nothing to do but like get mad. And like drive around with your friends at night. Yeah. And then there's like cool guys who seem really cool because they're in their 30s right. and you're like 17. Yeah. And I started hanging out with them. And yeah. they have drug problems and they write their own music. And So when you were 17, you were hanging out with the guys at the trash can. Yeah. Because they were like, they were the real thing. Yeah. Well, when I was, when I was, I was kind of like a pretty good kid, like yeah. nerdy with glasses yeah. and like, um, and then when I was 16, I like dated a cute towny guy and he introduced me to like the whole world of like people who have like drumming circles next to the pond in the middle of the night and stuff the the post hippie yeah and like everyone's shrooming and it's and and i i got into that crowd and it was dreads and smells yeah dreads and smells and and but it's like it was kind of an amazing group of people and i got really close to them and then years later you'd hear that people had died and it's yeah it's just a it's a really specific world that I hadn't seen portrayed before. Wait, you have siblings or you don't? I do. I grew up with an older brother. That's was, important. Yeah. How much older? Three and a half years. That's which enough. is like, yeah, which is enough for him to like introduce me to cool music, <laughs> right. but also hate me. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so that he, like, tension is necessary. Yeah. He hated me and he thought I was dumb, but I was like a good pupil. Right. So, so in those moments where you actually connected, it was around like him showing you cool stuff, him showing me cool stuff and cool music. And I remember when we were younger, um, his, he and his friends would be playing video games mm-hmm. and I was like in love with that. I was like in love with all of his like nerdy, nerdy friends just cause they He's were nerdy years- too. Yeah. We were both oh, you're, that's lucky. super nerdy, but his group of friends said that I could come hang out with them. Um, if they could use me as a footstool. So I would like, I remember as a kid, like just like lying like crouching in a little ball on my on the floor of my brother's bedroom and them like resting their feet on me and I was like this is great. How old were you? I get to hang out with these guys. You know, probably like 8 and they it's were 11. Borderline abusive. Yeah, bor- <laughs> <laughs> I was telling that like it was like a cute story and right. then your face like fell and you looked Why well if you were you oh, 12 it would have been a problem. Yeah. 11 and, yeah, and yeah. 7 11, yeah, 8 yeah. I, okay, yeah. it's cute. Yeah. What your what your folks do in Amherst? Um my mom growing up was a therapist. Oh, really? Yeah. What kind? Um, well, she worked at a clinic in Northampton for um, mostly um, children who were abuse survivors. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And then she was also like going back to school while she was doing that job and trying to get her PhD in psychology. And I remember once like the husband, she was like testifying in court for one of the abused kids and like the husband uh, showed up in our backyard, like threatening us. Like there was some, she was like part of that world. Right. Um, And then, so my brother and I lived with her and then my dad lived in New York City actually. Here? Yeah. Still? No. He lives in D.C. When they get divorced. Six. You were six. Yeah. Are your parents still together? No. They're still alive, not together. Every episode I've listened to of your show, everyone's parents are divorced. I'm keep, I, it might just be a coincidence which ones I've, I really, I'm like, are we all from divorced parents? Some people's are still alive, but yeah, yeah. Mo- I think most people in general in a certain world, the parents are divorced. Yeah. It seems pretty common. I, what effect it has on these all changed. My parents didn't get divorced till I was in my 30s. So huh. it's really, yeah, it's hard for me Do to figure out. Do you feel like they should have gotten divorced earlier? I don't know. You, you know, like, I, probably. I, I mean, I, I, there was so much uh, weird, self-involved lying going on. Like, I, I didn't know until later. But I, I, I don't know that I really felt that connected to them in general. So when you were 15, if someone was like, are your parents happy together? You would have been like, I don't know. Um. Yeah, because I just never really saw them as parents. They were just these people that I grew up with. <laughs> they had their, they seemed to have some <laughs> problems, and they needed a lot of attention. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, what's your relationship like with your parents? Um, my mom and I are really close. Is I she feel, still doing therapy? Yeah, and she's um she t- started teaching psychology after she got her doctorate up in New Hampshire, and she uh-huh. just she like just retired two months ago. She and I are really close. I, we were like too close when I was a kid. Sure. Like now I feel like it's really good. We're like friends. She was leaning on you when you were a kid? Well, I actually just think it's that thing when you're a single parent, yeah. especially after my brother went to college. It, when it, it's just like a 15-year-old girl and a 50-year-old woman like living together and you're both single. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's just really intense. Like yeah. we were just like a couple. Right. And we, I mean, I... um. Like, I don't know who I'd be without, like, staying, sitting at the kitchen table with her, like, Mm -hmm. really late at night and, like, talking about everything. Mm -hmm. But, so that's, like, a huge part of my life and I wouldn't ever take that away. But I am, like, that's great. Like, we talked, like, my friends would hear the kind of conversations I had with my mother and just be like, what? Um, But that's good. But I, mostly good. You know, like, occasionally you don't want to hear about everything. And I think as a kid, I always asked a lot of questions and I was very curious. But I always, I was the kind of kid that, like, asked the question that you, you, I didn't actually want to know the answer to. Like? Like, about, like, sex. And you you don't, you want your mom to talk about sex, like, to a certain point. And then you, like, and then you, like, don't, she laid it out. She laid it out big time. And, but not just the biology of no, it. No. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Too and much information. Too much information. And, yeah. and looking back, you're like, huh, mm. huh. Um, she's, but yeah, she's cool. So it's a boundary issue. She's a cool issue, lady. Yeah, we had, of. the two of us had some boundary issues. Like, yeah, there, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, like, hated all our boyfriends. And, yeah. you know, it was like, we yeah. were into, I was like a jealous husband. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your dad do? He's, well, he's done a lot of different things. It's sort of he's an environmentalist that's sort of what all his jobs have been related to yeah 
I'm, I don't know. I meet people who like whose parents told them yeah. that they were going to be like that they were going to be great artists when they grew up or that they could, you know, the whole like you can do anything, right, right, which right. you know, I'll probably tell my kids. Yeah. But there is a weird entitlement I think to people who think they who knew they were going to do great things or I, I don't know I just I never yeah. had that I was sure I've only met I was like I'm just trying to like avoid being homeless in the gutter and I so that makes me very um happy that I like I'm always very grateful that I yeah. get to be an artist because yeah. it is it's a legitimately a pleasant surprise like I did not think it would happen did you have jobs I had so many jobs and I was just sure that that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my I was totally resigned to that and I was really good like at what? finding jobs Just I was doing looking, jobs yeah period? I was like I'm gonna have a series of jobs and I'll try to find a by the you know I'll try to have a job that doesn't make me want to kill myself and I'll have that job and then I'll die and that, that was that's it that's what I get that was the dream that's what I get that's what um, you get yeah but really and that's what most people get you know and um, so I am really lucky what but I had tons of jobs and I was really good it's weird because I'm Really lazy and ineffective in um, lots of areas of my life, but I was, oh, I've always been really good at finding jobs. So I was like um, working in the bakery after school when I was in high school. I was like the youngest person there by like 15 years. and then Making I, bread and muffins? I just like sold cookies at the Oh, you didn't counter. get to bake? I didn't get to bake anything. Oh. But were the bakers um, there? The bakers were How there. How great is that to work in a place where they bake? It was great. And then I, if you, if a cookie breaks, you get yeah. to eat it. You're and like, then I yeah. just like be breaking cookies when they weren't <laughs> yeah. looking. Sure. Um, and I was just like babysitting all the time. You know, I just was like always working and mm-hmm. always like saving money. And then I worked throughout college and were you had like a million different school? jobs. Um, I was writing, but I wasn't showing it to anybody because I were also you I was writing short stories. I wrote a play. But and I like submitted it to some con, you know, some student play contest in the high school. Yeah, like a short play. And then I, um, what's the opposite of submitting? I rescinded it like the night before. I was like, actually, never mind. And, I, and then I like took it back because it was so bad. And uh-huh. you know, I was really self-hating and hated everything I wrote and sort of did it in secret. Why do you think you were self-hating? Um, I don't know. I do. Um. I do think it's partly like having an older brother and a father who were like really into like movies and books and like talking about um, all that stuff. I do think I do think that I always and I I don't know I always felt like anything I produced wasn't as good as I knew something. I didn't. I always held myself. It's like I at fifteen I still. I held myself to the standard I hold myself to now, which is like I want to make something really good, and that, it's so painful when you're 15 and, would and you're my like, and like I'm it. a yeah, and I'm a stupid 15 year old, so right. I can't do it. But right. I like knew I never had the thing where I was like, maybe it's really good. I always knew I was like an idiot yeah, high school student, and it's so painful. Right. And so then all the high school students who were like doing stuff and thinking it was good, I like couldn't identify with them. But were I mean, they I doing? still feel that way. Actually, I'm still like I haven't like this is terrible what I'm doing like what's wrong with you idiots that you think this really? is like yeah i'm not i'm not just being self-deprecating i am like but and there's a kind of like actually like do you know you won the pulitzer prize i did but that i had the same feeling where i was like this i could do so much better than this i mean it's actually very egotistical like if you it's i'm ac- it's actually kind of like i could be so much better right you should did um, you did you rescind the pulitzer like look yeah this i is like a sent the play where i'm like i think you guys you guys <laughs> You're it's wrong. It's really not that good. I you're want to wrong. take the play, but I don't know who submitted this. I that's 
I would have if I could have. <laughs> really? Seriously, yeah, seriously. Um, but probably for a, there's probably a broader series of pressures and reasons uh, than just being a 15 year old. Yeah, no, clearly it's like still going on for me now. But but now sort of like um, you know the the expectations or 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 the what you would see as expectations once you win something like that, which is a pretty big fucking deal. Yeah, you're, you're sort of like oh my god no. Now what? Yeah. Although I feel like my own expectations for myself have always been so high. Because people have asked me, they've been like, do you feel pressure now that you won this award to like, you know, the next thing you do has to be really good. And I actually feel like the amount of pressure I've exerted on myself is so high my whole life that it's like it actually doesn't. I don't feel it's more not pressure. Now. Yeah, I'm already yeah. like crippled under the weight of the pressure I put on myself. Because it's interesting about self hatred. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Keep going. Yeah, keep. Going. No, it it is because you know some people have it, and it's 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 a really hard thing to shake uh, that type of judgment on yourself. And some people don't have it. Um, I've I don't I don't meet a lot of people that you know are necessarily really confident but they don't do the thing where they second guess everything and even when they have success they're like nah, it was it's okay you know that thing that yeah. there's no moment of relief or sense of accomplishment that would you know give you the self-esteem even for a minute that was right. sort of like well it's so the self because i don't know like i don't hate if i think about it like i don't hate myself right like i like myself okay like i actually think i'm like a pretty good friend mm -hmm. And like a pretty good girlfriend. Like mm -hmm. I'm not great. You know, I'm like, yeah. okay. But yeah. I'm like, I don't beat myself up about it. Right. Well, actually, that's not true. But I don't. It's different. I'm like, I'm I'm like, I would want to be friends with me. Like yeah. I'm a nice yeah. lady. But, yeah. but, but then when it comes to like making art, it's like that's a whole that's a whole different story and that is about like what's the point it already it just feels like such a indulgent um thing to be able to do and so many people on this planet like don't get to do that and don't yeah. have the opportunity to express themselves creatively for their job I mean right. it's so crazy that we get to do that so then I do feel this like enormous pressure and enormous amount of I don't know if it's self-hatred but just like maybe it's self-hatred but just like I better fucking make this really amazing and then when it's not really amazing I feel like shit but um Maybe I don't know if that's self hatred. Would you? Would you? Do you hate yourself? Um, I I do I do it in a very specific way. Like you know, generally I think I'm okay with myself, but I do have like weird body issues for a dude, and I do. Um, Wait, what? What are your weird body issues? I just always feel like I'm like doughy. You're not. You don't look doughy. See, now it's gone for a second. <laughs> See what you did? <laughs> Thank you. This interview's been great for me. <laughs> But right. no, but have you always felt that way though? You've like since you were no, a kid, my, you were like I'm doughy. Uh, so like it was yeah, yeah, yeah. That was her way that she bonded with me. Her lack of boundaries was concern for me being fat. Oh, uh, and were you ever fat? Chubby. But like every kid's chubby. Right. Yeah, yeah. She fucked me up for good. Yeah. But it's deep. Yeah. Yeah. But like in terms of professionally, I never think I, I put the right amount of time into my bits. I don't think. Uh, that my comedy is as strong as it could be. I'll compare myself to other people, you yeah. know, like my friends uh, who are, you know, either more successful or who I think are more um, more funny or more, you know, have a structure 
like the, my process is my process anyone's process is whatever right but I, I always think like if I just if, if I was a little more disciplined and I didn't write like that yeah then I'd be much better but does yeah. it stop me no yeah so, I so definitely I, I, feel like I don't work hard enough right we perpetuate it it's our yeah, way yeah. of motivating yeah but when your parents got divorced did was that did you are you friends with your dad yeah so yeah I mean cool. I didn't really he didn't I grew up with my mom more right um but yeah, we're friendly. It's cool. But you didn't feel like, you know, it was your fault and all that shit? It wasn't my fault. No. You know, I was young enough that I don't remember. I definitely was like depressed and sad about it. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think worse than actually your parents getting divorced. Mm-hmm. For me, I shouldn't speak for other people. For me, worse than the divorce itself, because my parents like shouldn't have been together. It was like very clear. It, it was one of those divorces where afterwards you were like, I have no idea why those two people. My whole life's been a lie. Ev- would have yeah. ever gotten together. They're right. so different. Right. Like even just the two of them talking in the room at like right. a high school graduation yeah. seems surreal. Um, but I think harder for me was like um, the whole like parents dating other people thing and like people coming in and out of my lives and like my parents marrying people and then they were just like single people in the 80s right so you a lot know? of people and coming <laughs> through yeah there were a lot of people coming through on both sides and that was the hard part that's the thing where i look back and i'm like oh that sucked like having to meet people and um get to know them and like being asked to consider them your family and then them like disappearing when your parent breaks up with them. Like that whole thing fucked with my head. And I think if I ever have kids, that's the thing I would really want to try not to do if I ever like got divorced would be like the whole, mm-hmm. the whole like bringing, introducing your kid to people you're dating madness thing, but it's hard to avoid too. It's interesting. And I'm sure you've made the connection that, you know, trying to figure out what a relationship is and whether they're possible and, and, and whether you can have one that'll stay and is some theme you work with. In my work. Yeah. 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 Uh, is it? Yeah, I guess. You know, this, the play you saw last night, John, was like the first play where I'd ever really tried to like tackle a romantic relationship. I think I've always really avoided that. Um, and that was my first play where I was like, oh, I'm a, I want to write about like the mind fuck of being in a relationship like in its last stage. But last stage of three years. Last stage of three. Yeah. But like that thing. Where like you, a young like, relationship yeah, with young people. Young people when you shouldn't be together. Yeah, but, but you're like working really hard yeah. and you don't know yourself well enough to know that you should just leave. Right. And, and that whole thing. And then you beat your. You think there's something wrong with you. And that whole cycle. I was interested in writing about that, but I, that's like another thing. I really hesitated writing about it because I do think like so many plays and movies about relationships, Mm -hmm. there is a point where I'm like, why do I care? It's just like, like, but also there has to feel a little universal and not just about like two people in love and breaking up. Well, I didn't, I didn't feel that that was the primary story, but the idea of, of, of what is permanent and what is, um, you know, unconditional and what is you know bigger than us yeah and what stays throughout well that's the hardest thing for me about becoming an adult was this whole idea like I think I would have fared that's not true I'm going to say something that's not true but I think I would have fared better in like a one of those societies where you like married your first 
girlfriend or boyfriend and uh-huh. then you're just like stuck with them and you're not allowed to get divorced uh-huh. i don't actually wish that's what had happened but but i the, the whole thing where like you could fall in love with people and even live with them and like have thanksgiving with them and then break up which is kind of what being in your 20s is about uh-huh. now uh-huh. killed me like i couldn't believe that because i'd grown up with that and i didn't want to do that yeah and and just ludicrous to me like like bringing someone in that close to you and and like trying to make someone family and then it failing and then you never see each other again and i would try to be friends with all my ex-boyfriends because i was like how can we not be in each other's lives anymore you know i was like it was very very hard for me to accept the idea that like people leave your life sometimes it's horrible and that you can init like that i would initiate that that i'd be the person who would end something also killed me like i couldn't like i could that was um i feel like that was like my most self-hating moment was like in my mid-20s when i was like i'm hurting people and ending things and Mm. and um that really killed me and i do feel like that's related to like being a coming child of divorce, yeah. People coming I just didn't and want going. to do that myself, and then of course I did. And it must. How can you not? No, it's it's impossible not to. Yeah. And and still honor your feelings if you just unless you just luck out. But I think it's interesting that the idea of it's not the society you talk about where you're supposed to be with the person that you you, you yeah I mean that it, the idea of marriage is sort of that. Yeah. But there was no reason that you would ever believe in it, given what you grew up with. Well, yeah. It, it didn't seem. Rational. Yeah, I wanted it very badly though. Like I loved the idea of like meeting someone in eight, at 18 and being with them for the rest of your life. I was like that sounds great. That sounds so stable. But you'd have to turn a lot of your brain off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and and suck up a lot of things where, you know, in the culture we live in as as, you know, um ideas about individuality and psychology evolve, you know, we've grown to try to service ourselves. Uh, more than than others in relationship and, and protect that i i don't know you know those there's no No, that's the hardest thing it is the hardest thing and yeah and, and it's all about compromise you know having like i'm older than you and i've you know been through a couple marriages and some painful shit but and i don't i don't like it and it's really kind of awful it's i like but i'm just realizing now as you talk about it that if i look at the two plays i saw this this idea of of grieving, you know, absence of somebody for whatever reason and the loneliness of longing and then also the sort of the weird painful loneliness of of losing or deciding to to not be with somebody you, you loved is like that's a human thing. It's Everybody has that. They're just walking around with at some state of heartbreak. Yeah. Managing I, heartbreak. Yeah, and I never wanted to betray anybody. That was always my thing. Like as a teenager and someone in my early twenties, I was always like, I don't, I'm, I'm never gonna betray anybody. Yeah. But like, of course, we just go through life betraying everybody yeah. all the time and ourselves, and it's just a matter of like managing it and talking about it and like yeah. rationalizing, rationalizing it. it and trying to minimize it. Mm-hmm. But I just never wanted to make anyone feel bad or betrayed ever. Yeah. And then I, of course, I, I, the sad thing too is when you also like have that goal, then you right. end up betraying people left and like, then you're just like not in touch with your desires and then you screw lots of people over. Right. Well, that's the and trap. That, that's and then, a, and then, yeah. And then you're hard on yourself. Yeah. And then yeah. you get to honor that like, I'm not good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I figured it all out. Yeah. 
So when did you decide to um, pursue theater for real? I mean, what, why did you go to college? Like you were working and doing your jobs and breaking yeah. cookies. And, right. And, you know, you didn't have a big plan for yourself. Did your parents say, like, you should go to college? Or were you I, sure? You... Oh, I totally wanted to go to right. college. Like, I loved reading and I loved art and I wanted to get out of my small town and I wanted to move to New York City. Um, so I, I was super excited about going to college. But well, you wanted to move to New York City because of college or just because there was something here that you had decided you wanted there was something here that i decided i wanted what was that based on I don't, my on. dad living here right. like i visited him here mm -hmm. i liked it i liked going to like see movies at film forum right. i wanted to like work in the theater somehow yeah. so, so right did. when i moved here yeah, yeah right when i moved here while i was my freshman year of college i was like a stage manager at la mama which is actually like right two here. blocks away yeah. from here um and i just immediately started so you um, knew theater was it I was super into theater, and I was like, I want to be involved in this somehow. And were you acting? You were acting in college, in high school. In high school, I was acting, but I never wanted to be an actor because I'm a bad actor. What were you doing? What kind of acting? What plays? Like, well, I was the star of my high school musical, my senior year of high school, Guys and Dolls. You did Guys and Dolls. I in did high Guys school. and Dolls, okay. and I was Adelaide, mm -hmm. and that was still the high point of my life. To this day. To this day. <laughs> was because I got to like wear tiny sparkly hot pants mm -hmm. and like fishnet stockings. Mm -hmm. and I remember like the woman who was supposed to choreograph my dances like got sick or something like the gym teacher or whatever. Yeah. And so I like choreographed all my own dances and like got to wear a blonde wig and it's the bigger than the Pulitzer. Bigger than the <laughs> Yeah. No question. I was happier then. Really? Well, that, that one experience was right. really, really great. It's great. It was totally great. And I remember when it was happening, I was like, it's ne I'm never going to get to like star in a musical and like wear tiny, sparkly hot pants ever again. again. This, this is, is it. it. And it was. Oh. Yeah. There, you know, there's still, there's still time, Annie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Well, I'm, it, I'm saying it on your podcast in case someone's doing a production of Guys and Dolls somewhere and wants yeah. to cast me. I'm they, available. I'd, I'd, I'd watch the email box. <laughs> okay. You're going to get some weird... Were you serious about the guys and dolls? And I'll say yes. <laughs> but I can't do it for scheduling reasons. I'll clear my schedule. I'm, oh, no, I'm, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you come here, and you, you went to where? I went to NYU. Yeah. And I studied, I studied a lot of stuff. I studied playwriting, though. I studied Undergrad. Undergrad. I studied religion. What school? You're in Tisch school? Tisch, yeah. I yeah. studied playwriting at Tisch. But you're working at La Mama as a stage hand, is that? Stage manager, just that was so, like one of my many jobs. I also, all my jobs were very close to here actually. Um, I was a, worked at St. Mark's Bookshop. Oh yeah, when else oh, it's, it's gone. I know. But the La Mama thing, I mean, what was your experience in taking theater in up to the point of you coming here? It, there wasn't a lot, which is one of the, it's still like very mysterious to me how I ended up being interested in theater and doing theater. And then the fact that I'm a play right now, I don't totally understand it. I mean, there's like high school theater and I had a great high school drama teacher yeah. who showed me lots of good plays. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know why I liked it so much and I don't know why I was so drawn to it. Um, I don't, I still don't totally understand it. To go really? back to the beginning of our conversation, yeah, I it's um it's always just been like a mysterious thing, and I've always been very drawn to it. And there wasn't like a moment when I was like, I love theater, I want to work in theater. No, and so much about theater drives me insane. Like it's sometimes it's kind of a nightmare. 
Um, and I, I feel like when you do theater, you're not really part of the larger cultural conversation. Yeah. Like it's like, it's like a weird business. Um, and, and so I still like, like I woke up this morning and I was like, why do I do the, like, I just was like, Ugh. I like got the up. email that the computers went out last night and there were no sound cues for half the show. And I was just like, why did I do this? Yeah. Like what, like why did I choose to work in like the most flawed ephemeral out of your control medium well it's not always out of your control i mean that was it's actually more than most contextually very in your control kind of but something always goes wrong like it really it's sort of like you can't it's sort of impossible to have the perfect show because right, um, you have actors you have other there's elements. so many things that can go wrong and even if someone sees a really good show like the next night someone sees the show where there's no doorbell ring and 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 um i mean that's like really beautiful like there's something really beautiful about that it's human yeah and like you i'm a huge perfectionist and you can't ever hit perfection in the theater like it's like it's a crazy goal because and you can find the perfect cast but someone always drops out like two weeks before rehearsal and also start, somebody you know? could you know space out there could be weird moments where it's yeah, sort yeah of people like, forget their lines every when, show that's yeah, just where the they way gonna, it goes are they going to get back on track <laughs> yeah it's just what happens like people well that's sort of exciting yeah but it does it's like this crazy emotional roller coaster and and watching my own plays i am like this is a nightmare and like the greatest adrenaline rush ever like there's something really it's like both at the same time that sounds great yeah i mean kind of it like it it is you're like living when you watch your own play uh -huh. and someone forgets their line but then like remembers it five seconds later like you yeah. are like the highs and lows are sure. very extreme and, yeah it's like reading of, a comment section <laughs> It's just like reading a comment section. Ooh, nice one. Oh, man. Oh, that's I horrible. did that this morning. I read the comment section oh, for some review in the New York Times. But wait, we got to go back here because okay. something must have happened. Let, let's try to identify. That made me in, into theater. Well, no, but like, you know, La Mama is very specific. And I have to assume like a 19-year-old in I, that. I didn't know what it was. There was like a sign on a. No, it I was know, like but, a I mean, sign but on once the wall. you're in it. Yeah. It was, it's one of the great sort of bastions of experimental theater. Yeah. And, and is that the right use of the word I bastion? I was really impressed that you okay. said it. And, and so I had. Just, I think, I wouldn't, I don't know, but it sounds it, like, really yeah, good. I think it, it, it could be used there. Yeah. I'll look bastion. It up later. Yeah. It, but, but I have to assume that coming out of what you came from, even, you know, being relatively hip kid, that something must have happened there. there like because i know i don't go to a lot of theater because i can't bear bad theater and i don't i don't seek it out i don't seek theater out yeah unless somebody tells me i got to see it there are plays i've seen in my life that have changed my life like what well i think that like the thing that really blew me away about theater was just how like strangely human it was, but just once removed, like th that you would have somebody right yeah. there, you know, talking at this pitch, you know, I mean, see spit and, and it's its own universe, but like I could touch him. Yeah. You know, and that, that connection, I saw a, a weird amateur production in Albuquerque, New Mexico of Sam Shepard's tooth of crime. I think. Oh yeah. And it's, that's huh. an, an epic fucking play. Yeah. Of, uh, sort of about the music business. And, you know, there were people I knew in it because I, I was a kid that like I got a job across from the university when I was 15. So I was very entrenched with art and older people and doing art and being an artist and all that stuff. So this guy I used to work with at the restaurant, Judd, he 
directed and put up this to the crime at this like That's kind of amazing. weird theater space and the dude who played crow was this painter in town like so it was this yeah this vortex of all the local arty people that i kind of knew and i i don't know that i could wrap my mind around the play really uh but i was just sort of amazed at the commitment of it all and and of the spectacle yeah. of it all and of the language of it all and it's so vulnerable too yeah. oh, like yes. i feel so, like being in a play or putting on a play is like the most humiliating vulnerable thing to do and then musicals, there's such, the yeah worst. that is <laughs> but there is something like that's also then really when it works and you're in the audience and these people are being so vulnerable right it's like really you can get like a high off of it well not just a high but it's like it's it's vulnerability and and in a in a space where it's permitted and allowed to be connected with by an audience or others is sort of an elevation of the human spirit it's sort of why we're here in some weird way it's a part of being human that gets very you know distant from a lot of people yeah and it's an interaction like mm -hmm. even though the actors on stage are pretending you aren't there like you know they know that you're there like you're all, everyone's like aware and it is some kind of weird just like human interaction and that's I think one of the things that keeps bringing me back to it because I do find that like most human interactions kind of suck and and like don't have a lot of meaning in them and there's a lot of depressing small talk and like a play is an opportunity to like be in a room with a lot of people and talk about important things or like things that matter to but people that's, but that's and get really vulnerable with each other. Right. But, but that, that's, a, that's interesting that you say that in be, because of like the, the type of conversation that, that, that is the flick was, was mundane conversation on the surface in a way. Yeah, that's true for part of that play. Yeah. yeah. They are just like shooting the shit. Yeah. And that, and this whole idea about the, requirement of an audience in theater and in, the, in that relationship the fact that you created this this set that was unchanging and it was a movie theater where the seats actually reflected the seats of the theater yeah that you know that that sort of demands attention i don't know you know how conscious the playwright is of what that, no, that might was, mean that was like the first thing that came to me when i started writing the play like that was my idea that was it was going set. to be set in a movie theater with the like the fourth wall being the movie screen and like a face-off right. of like audience seats like audience like a full audience facing an empty audience on stage and like theater versus film kind of in the physical space which sort of provokes the question as an audience member like you know well, I guess the the most innocent one is like, are we the movie? Are, yeah. And, you know, what are our lives? What is this saying about us? Who yeah. are these people having this small talk on stage? You know, just sort of like co-workers at an old movie theater just trying to feel each other out and and position themselves in this small world. Yeah, yeah. What was your intention of it? Was my I mean, I'm so bad at talk, uh, talking no, I don't, about my I, intentions. And I, and I don't think you should have to. Um, but what, I mean, I did, it was actually just an experience I would have um, going to the movies. It's like I would go see a really crappy movie. Right. And then it would be over and I'd stay till the end of the credits because I just kind of liked 
that mm-hmm. it just kind of we- it gets weird and mm-hmm. quiet and awkward mm-hmm. and like the weird flashes of light that happen at the end of the credits and the special thanks and the um and then i loved the moment when the lights came on and the ushers came through and started like shit talking each other and sweeping up the popcorn Mm -hmm. like that transition from like the magic like time machine of the movies Mm -hmm. into the like crazy present tense like fluorescence fluorescent lights on like Mm -hmm. some guy in a polo shirts like sweeping up popcorn that to me felt like so profound and i still couldn't really tell you like i couldn't be like well it's profound because right you know like but to me that moment and that transition um like i wanted it to be both a tribute to the movies like the power of watching a movie and how jarring it is when a movie's over and a tribute to like theater because actually when you're sitting in those audience seats and then the ushers come through you're kind of just like watching theater like right they're kind of like performing for you a right. little when they sweep when yeah. they know you're still there yeah 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 um so so that whole thing was like soup felt like super potent to me and this sort of these characters which are familiar to to any of us in a way either because we've had jobs like that or we've lived in towns like that where you have a guy like Sam who is stuck, and and because of that, he's become this sort of senior uh, employee. There's a sadness to that guy. Yeah. Not unlike the guys at the trash can, I imagine. Yeah. Where where they they seem to have missed or or sort of overdreamed themselves into a paralysis where they're not gonna ever leave. Although, yeah. Or I also just feel like most jobs in this country. Mm-hmm suck Mm -hmm. like i don't know i feel like uh, we forget when we like achieve our dreams and like get to interact with other people who like achieve their dreams that like most people don't get to have the job they'd really like to have Mm -hmm. like no most people like don't get their dream job i mean i'm saying really obvious shit but i it's that thing where i still think about that all or they might not know what it is or they might not know what it is they're just surviving because they don't know how to manifest you know like you said their creativity or because maybe their life has cornered them into a situation who knows why maybe or just like class in this oh, country sure. absolutely yeah. and i just like uh, like the guy like that guy in the play just like didn't get to go to college and um i don't know i guess i do i wanted to write about that too like and when you when you write plays like like you you recognize shepherd when i said it like at some point, whether you know why you got into it or not, you know, you had to reckon with what was going to become your life. You had to deal with theater. You had to educate yourself. Yeah. Although I was just going to say, although I'm not like I actually um, am not as well read in theater as I should be. Like, I love theater. I go see theater all the time. I love a lot of I like love certain playwrights and really studied them. But like I who? like um I mean, I like I got really into Chekhov for many years and like read everything he ever wrote. What um, was it about Chekhov that that compelled you um, specifically? Just how messy it was. How uh, I mean, just going back to vulnerability. How like scared and vulnerable everyone in his plays is, and how um, the conflict in the plays isn't like. Like, because when you take, like, a playwriting class in college, they tell you that, like, it's like a bad acting class. It's like, what do you want? You know, like, this character wants this thing, and, like, this character needs to want, like, something different. And then they, like, 
have to duke it out. And I always hated that kind of writing. And I feel like Chekhov plays really inspired me because they were like, that person doesn't know what they want. That person doesn't know what they want. They think they're projecting like this onto that other person. And now they're both feeling really lonely in the same room together. And that was really exciting to me. And like his plays always felt so much more entertaining to me than plays that had like a really action-packed plot or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. but that said like i actually i i hate reading plays i really okay. i love seeing plays it's like my favorite thing to do but i really hate reading them and i'd much rather read a novel like any day of the week sure so shakespeare i like well i like shakespeare because i was a high school theater nerd yeah so i kind of know a lot of shakespeare because i was like in hamlet when i was 15 and i like took a Shakespeare class and got really into it. So that was like, I think if you're a high school theater nerd, you get to know Shakespeare. Okay, but what did you glean from him in the in, as a person who writes plays? Oh, God. You know, I've never actually thought about, like, what what Shakespeare taught me. Um, what did you like about like it? It feels like a part of my... It's so funny. It, like, feels like a part of me because I was so young. You know, I was, like, in Merchant of Venice when I was, like, 12. Uh-huh. Um, I had my first kiss... Like doing Merchant of Venice, yeah, with this like cute older boy. Yeah. Um, Did you feel it? Oh, I was so into it, and he was—I was like a really unattractive like twelve-year-old. He was not into it, and I think he actually like asked the director to cut that. They ended up cutting the kiss from the show. Oh, but there was one glorious rehearsal when we got to kiss, and I was super, super excited. Did it hurt your feelings when they cut? The yeah, kiss? yeah, it totally hurt my feeling. I was ah. like, is it? And then you just—I'm still it's an torn. Like just seen tragedy of just, Shakespeare. For just you. telling you about it, I'm like, yeah. is it because I was a bad kisser, or is it because you were twelve, or is it because he they didn't want it in the play anymore? I don't know. Like. Uh. Anyway, um, Shakespeare. So it felt I don't sort know. of ingrained. Yeah, to you? those plays just feel like part of the like culture in a weird way, and those stories. Yeah. Um, and the ma- I mean, the, what the cool thing about those plays is how little you need to do them. I feel like if you go to most plays in New York, oh, yeah. including mine, actually, you have these like incredibly expensive sets that are like trying to represent what a living room looks like or something. And it's really depressing and a lot of money is spent on it. And I think doing Shakespeare in high school, and I feel like a lot of high school kids have this, it's like a way to like get that all you need for theater is like a high school gymnasium. <laughs> and you you know what I mean? And like two props. Yeah. And you can like do a really good version of Hamlet. Like right. you'd, And then and um, each every scene like takes place in a different place and people are like running around. And there is, it's like super... They don't make very good movies. I mean, right. with some exceptions, but it's they're they're so theatrical. Um, but I'm I'm kind of pulling that out of my ass as so I talk I'm, to you. I didn't like that's not why I why not just any... why not just consider it thinking out loud? Yeah, and, and trust it for a minute. All right, I'm not pressuring you. Yeah, no, it's just that thing where so, um, I'm sure you have this all the time. You like I listen, pull a lot of shit out of my ass. Yeah, and you listen to yourself or read yourself in print, I, and you're yeah. like, I just made that up to have something to say. Right, or, or you were just saying something. Bec- you hadn't thought about it before, but I think that what you're like, what you said, because I I have a hard time with Shakespeare, and I just you know I just had Ian McKellen give me a lesson in it face to face. Yeah, like he did Shakespeare for me, right, looking at me, and it was sort of mind blowing. Yeah, I, and I get that that I'm not going to get anything from reading it. Those days are sort of behind me, but if it's played with feeling and 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 focused, that the language 
connects on an emotional level, even yeah, if I don't of, understand it. Yeah, it kind of like zaps your brain, that right. language, in an amazing way. I also think Shakespeare should be performed in smaller spaces, mm-hmm. which I actually think is why a group of high school students doing Shakespeare can be the best way to see it. Because... Um, or sitting at a table mm-hmm. with Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. because I do feel like they do Shakespeare in these like huge hoity-toity venues. There's an and you're like watching, yeah, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance around about it about honoring the Shakespearean method. Yeah, as and well. people have yeah. like weird pseudo-British accents when yeah. they do it, even when they're American, and yeah. you know, there's like a lot of pretension around it. And I actually do think that like doing it in a small space without a lot of but you took to it. I did take to it, yeah. So, okay, so you did, you were into Chekhov when you got to college. And you put up a Chekhov play too, right? Yeah, I adapted Uncle Vanya a couple of years ago. Was that a great that. experience for you? It was a great experience. And we did it actually in a tiny, tiny space. So no one was farther away from the actors than like you and I are from each other. And it was in the round and everyone was sitting on the floor. Um, and I we just used all my favorite actors in New York. Who? Um, Let's give them a little love. Reed Bernie. Mike Shannon, Georgia Engel, who was in John, yeah, love you her. saw last night. Um, Maria Dizia, there's nine people. Matt Mayer, who was in the flick. Yeah, he's great. Um, a lot of really great people. Um, it so was you've just got like, a crew. I got a crew, yeah. and I got my crew to do it, and they were amazing. So and what did you what did you want out of that? Um, I kind of want wanted exactly what I got, which was um, that was actually the most fun I've ever had watching. Uh, my own work because it wasn't really my work like it was an opportunity to write and change words around and be kind of a perfectionist um with a play i already knew was really good mm-hmm. so that whole thing we were talking about of like feeling like a failure and feeling like you can't you didn't make the thing you want to make mm-hmm. i just tried to do a really really loyal translation of a play that i think is amazing and cast really good people in it and work with a really good director and really good designers and it was super gratifying did sam gold direct it. it yeah he directed it where'd you meet he him did a great job um, I met him in 2006 just through mutual friends, like his girlfriend, who's now his wife, was my friend and thought we'd work well together. And the guy I was dating at the time was his friend. And, you know, it was yeah. like that weird thing where people are like, you guys should meet and talk. Uh-huh. And then we did. So in starting to write plays, like how many are, are not are, are sort of just sitting on your computer still? Um, there's like three or four just sitting in my computer. Big plays or they? Big plays. One was an attempt to write like uh, the the my worst nightmare of a play, uh-huh. which was a like two person play about a romance, uh-huh. um, with a lot of nudity. Because mm-hmm. I always feel like people really exploit stage actors and right. make them take off their clothes all the time. Right. And I'm friends with a lot of actors, and it, it's just a really intense thing to ask someone to do. So I wrote this play that was like an almost nude, two hander play. Uh-huh. So I'll never show that to anybody. Okay. That was like a personal challenge. Uh-huh. And I have some play I wrote that was kind of an attempt to write about me and my mother that didn't work out. Those Why? are the two that come to mind. Um, I wrote it. I haven't looked at it in years. I, it just like um, just didn't find itself. It like didn't find a higher meaning. There Is wasn't it, like I, I didn't I never cracked the like thing above the family drama. And I think at some point I got nervous and tried to add a lot of like plot and action. I remember someone like running out of the room and getting a gun, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was really bad. And well, do you think that some of that like when you say you, you crack the 
the wall or the ceiling of the, the drama. That's just something you feel. Yeah, that's like an intuitive thing. Well, it's that... Um, that's the gift right there. Well, that's the thing you're moving towards is that you could write about something very small, like someone sweeping up popcorn mm-hmm. or like a couple in a bed and breakfast, and that somehow if you do it the right way, it like achieves some larger spiritual meaning that you actually can't articulate or else it wouldn't have that resonant And meaning. you can't really explain it. And you can't but, really explain it, and that's what makes it work. And then sometimes you just write a play, and you're like, oh, this has no larger spiritual meaning. It's really just about these people mm-hmm. saying the things they're saying, and it's like not profound, and I don't know why. And usually it comes from me trying to be, like it's that if you try too hard to be profound, or if I have like too big, an, or if I'm too sure of what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I feel like that can actually like cripple the thing and make it then mean nothing right. so you have to like hope that the parts come transcendent together. thing happens like i imagine the thing about you and your mother is probably too personal for 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 you to find that thing maybe i have i really admire people who can like write straight autobiographical stuff from there, I mean, I'm sort of glad I can't do it because I feel like my family would be really mad at me. Yeah, but um, I've done it. They'll be mad at you. They'll be mad at me. But I've actually been lucky enough that like my plays really aren't based on specific people or things that have happened to me. Um, and I actually, I that's that's not really because I'm trying to protect anyone. It's actually just because I need a kind of distance from it. Like, I don't think I could ever write a character based on either of my parents entirely. Because, be too self-censoring? Yeah. I'd be too, I'd, or even if I did just like let, I'd be too angry or I'd be the opposite. I'd either like be too easy on them or be too hard on them. I mean, I think that's how we feel about our parents. We like excuse weird behavior and then are weirdly hard on them for other behavior. And I feel like to write a character, I need to feel t- just 100% empathetic towards mm-hmm. them but mm-hmm. also have like a kind of cold critical distance and i just like don't know how i could ever write a play about either of my parents that had that kind of appropriate objective right. distance and and then you don't have the freedom to to build a relationship that's completely new with the character you're getting yeah. to know yeah and i feel like i'd have some weird agenda writing right. a play about someone i know like i'd be trying to prove some point yeah and you don't you, you don't feel like you have an agenda no, I definitely do not have an agenda. I mean, if, if I have an agenda, it's like I don't want to make plays like all the crappy plays that people who have seen. I mean, it's so crazy. Like I meet so many people who are like, yeah, I don't really like theater. Mm. And I guess my agenda is to like make plays that those people might like. Get them. Like, that was a conversation we had. I feel like I should at some point, but I don't want to lose this thread, you know, talk about the basic plots of the two plays because you know most people don't see plays and most people of, don't see plays or they see plays but like in their town they see like their town production of two or they go crime. to a big bra- or go to a big broadway thing. or then they go see wicked yeah the flick it takes place in a theater you know all in mostly during lights up when these ushers and the projectionists and that job kind of alters a bit uh you are cleaning up and the characters are um, Rose, Avery, and Sam. And I think I saw it right, the original cast, right? That yeah, is. yeah, those three, yeah. yeah. They're still doing it for a couple more weeks. Now, in, in building these characters, where did you know? Because there's something I, I did read in one of the earlier plays that, uh, that, that I didn't get to finish. 
but in the beginning of the play, you you sort of created a glossary of absence. That there's oh yeah, <laughs> that there was a glossary of of what the different silences were required that you ask them whoever was producing yeah. the show to utilize this key of of pause silence and there was a few there was like yeah. four yeah i don't do that anymore because so many people told me that i seemed like such an asshole like so many people were like we bought your book of plays and you have this thing at the beginning where you tell people exactly how long to pause and it seems really but but it is and i also feel like people know my work well enough now that they sort of know not to speed right. through it but right. sorry i interrupted you where were no, you no, going no. but but see to me that's that's sort of a a type of awareness that you know you obviously see those periods of silence as being as important if not more important than the actual um dialogue yes definitely definitely why well i feel like a the reason well it sort of goes back to the reason i hate reading plays is because i feel like 80 percent of theater is like the way it looks mm -hmm. the physical objects on stage and like the bodies moving through space like the way someone crosses their legs or gets up and walks across the room and uh, that's like so much of the play to me and i'm so much more in i think i am really interested in um, movement and silence like movement happening during silence um and yeah, to me, that's just as important as the dialogue in the play. So, so there are certain directors out there. This is like a big thing in British theater where they like cross out the stage directions. They like don't look at them. It's just the dialogue. Um, and that to me is crazy because I'm trying to orchestrate like a whole event um, where like the way you push up your glasses is as important as the thing you say. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's true in real life. And Whether um, we know it or not. Whether we know it or not. Right. And... Uh, so I try to be super specific about that in my stage directions and in the play. Um, well, I think it's it, it's really effective because what's interesting is I know that there was some controversy here in New York about uh, people not liking the flick and you know previous to it winning any sort of awards. Yeah, that where it was put up originally, uh, there was some backlash from theater goers, and I was just in a room full of a lot of theater goers. Right, and these are not people that I would hang out with and many of them are much older than me. Yeah. And and I know who they are and I you know I don't want to stereotype them, but yeah. there is an expectation to what theater is and what it's become. Yeah. It's it's become this strange kind of almost um uh how do I want to say it? This uh, cultural responsibility of a certain generation of people that's totally. uh that's a holdover from a different time. Yeah. And their expectations are outdated and, and sometimes specific. And it's not so much that they necessarily like mainstream things, but they have a definite idea of what theater should provide for them. Yeah, it should be like people talking really loudly and like debating issues in a really obvious, clear way. And the play should have a really clear message right, that but you also, like take home with you. But it, and also it, it, that that experience of theater is sort of, you know, not unlike a movie in a certain way. They want to be taken away. For, for a couple of hours with this spectacle. Yeah. And and you actively fight that by, by use of silences and also by use of breaking the fourth wall or suggesting that fourth wall is uh, you know, a movie screen. That there there's a there there is a an engagement that's required that is not specifically a spectacle. Yeah. Well it's like it's like I don't want it to necessarily be a spectacle, but I also want I want to figure out what is so special about theater because I actually think 
um, you know, there's all this worry in the theater community about like, is theater dead? You know, Always. people have been talking about this though yeah. for like 75 years. Right. But um, so I just think it's funny that people keep worrying that theater is dead and no one's going to go see theater anymore. But I feel like people react to that by trying to make stuff that's like more entertaining and like more fast moving and like more glitzy. Um, and for me, I feel like the thing theater does is you can like slow time down and we can all be in the room together. Right. I didn't just to tell you, I did not feel that either play was long. Oh, that's great at all. I don't know why it must be why you're good. (laughs) Well, a lot of people like complain about how long they are, which is really interesting to me because there's movies that are longer. There's other plays that are longer. That's great. and, And I'm not like a theater going person. Yeah. But I did not, and I, you know, and I see a lot of live shit. I've been a comedian for a million yeah. years. I, I don't sit still well. I can't handle a concert, even if it's the fucking Rolling Stones for more than 45 minutes. I'm ready yeah. to go. I get antsy. Right. But I, I, I did not feel the time. And I don't know why, but it was good. But, and also like, I think what you're talking about is this insecurity in, in show business industry in general to create a pace and, a, and, a, and an experience that, you know, they're over, always overcompensating out of complete insecurity of how to keep people engaged and whatever. Now, theater yeah. is a little different, but it's... It- no, I think it's very similar in that way. And mm-hmm. this, like, thing where during previews before the plays open when you can still make changes, you know, I have playwright friends where they'll be like, oh, people didn't laugh enough. I have to, like, change the thing. Or someone walked out. I have to make the play shorter. Mm. Where I, And then I feel like that really fucks people up and makes bad theater what's well, not that's not supposed you're not supposed to do a uh what do you call it a test group yeah exactly i mean you can have previews and stuff and there's no i don't think there's any rule in theater like if you're a playwright and and something isn't effective you your director and you talk about it or you decide to do something but yeah. not to accommodate laughter necessarily yeah although i think a lot of people work that way of i course. think that is there's there's just so much fear i mean there's fear in like any art form and any medium especially law li- anything live is like the scariest thing ever um, but I feel like theater people are like extra scared and extra worried and it's like a weirdly conservative well, pan- medium. Well, well that's because they're pandering to a subscriber base that yeah. they're, they're 90. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then it feeds itself because then when you pander to those people, then interesting young people don't come and then it just gets worse and worse. No, absolutely. And, and, and I think that the difference between, you know, what, you know, how, what you do, you know, makes its way to Broadway if it, if it ever needs to be there like it seems like the theaters that i saw these plays in was was a great place to see them and yeah that, and once the expectations of ticket sales and and all that stuff comes in even barry child can survive on broadway when he did it yeah and i kind of think it's just unconscionable and this is not against anyone who has anything on broadway but i kind of think it's unconscionable to charge more than 50 dollars a ticket yeah i mean i think it's kind of unconscionable to charge 50 dollars a ticket mm-hmm. and any more than that is just crazy it like just becomes some I, I like don't understand what it is when you're paying like $150 to see a Broadway show. That's just like not a world I'm interested in at all. And also I think what you're interested in is, is really what theater is supposed to be is that it seems like your struggle with your characters and creating these plays is to, to sort of, you know, you may not know how it's going to happen, but to, to sort of elevate uh, the, the, you know, the richness of, 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 you know, what, what it's supposed to be to feel human. 
and to have your soul connected to something if you believe in framing it that way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, finding it through the characters that you do. And I think that that is what, you know, why theater was vital to begin with. It was to reconnect us with our humanity. Isn't that yeah. what the art? Right. Yeah. So it's sort of lost that focus. And it sounds to me like you want to return to that, you know, and bring in the generation of people that has no experience or desire or necessarily interest or, or, or information about what theater is. Yeah. And I think that's great. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I that's my idea. Once a woman came to see one of my plays who had l never seen a play before, including like when she was a kid, mm -hmm. she just was like, this is my first this is the first time I've ever sat in an audience and watched actors on a stage. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's my ideal audience member. Like, mm -hmm. that's I want to make something that works for that person. Um, that's just super interesting to me. And like how electrifying if 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 the play is good that must feel to someone who's never seen that before. What's the biggest struggle that you have like in, in making a play whole? Like, like, when because, you, like when I'm writing it or when I'm well, in like production? One thing I noticed last night was yeah. that the, a consistency of character uh, within a character, you know, both emotionally and psychologically. I, you know, I, I always find that fascinating because, you know, when you write television, a lot of times they're just writing joke to joke. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? It really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Once you get it, the character's broad. A lot of times. Yeah. But so when you have the time to do what you do in theater, that the idea that in, in say, John, that the Elias character's childhood, you know, kind of makes sense with who he is as an adult in terms of his emotional issues and psychological issues. Yeah. And there it's consistent. And, and, and it, it, it adds up as a human person. How how much of the work is about finding that consistency in, in having that character be psychologically and emotionally sound as the one you, you want to create? Um, Are you conscious of it? A lot of it's unconscious. A lot of it is just like when I'm writing it, realizing that something I've written like somehow isn't true to that character and then having to That's cut intuitive? It. it really is. I do, I am really slow. And before I actually start writing the play, I take notes for years. I say like I have like 100 pages on my computer of notes about every single play I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is character. It's not character like, why does he do this? He does this because right. X, but it is just details. Like, oh, he, you know, went to this summer camp and this thing happened to him when he was a baby and he it's his first memory and this and this and this and just um, crazy, super, super specific details about their lives. And that sort of, once that document is really long, that sort of, in a weird way, the template for the play. Like, then I sort of know everything about this person and then I put them in a situation and see what they do. But it's there's very little planning about what's going to happen in the play and very little planning about like, are they going to behave this way because of that? Right. There's very little, I think my plays are very psych psychological, but I try not to be overly psychological while writing them. Right. Um, just because I feel like in real life we do stuff that's like everything's psychological, everything's related to our childhood, but in a very like sneaky, weird, crazy way that we can never really put our finger on. Right. Um, and when we think we're like getting to the root of it, we're like farther away than we ever were yeah, if before. You, right. Because if you get something intellectually, it doesn't mean that it's connected or you can do yeah. anything about it. Well, that was my fear of therapy for so many <laughs> yeah. years was just that like by talking about my childhood and being like, yeah, that's why I right. 
couldn't commit to that thing or mm-hmm. something that uh, that actually I would be farther away from the answer and farther away from self knowledge than ever before. Just because like the second you pin something down like that, right, it's it, probably wrong. Or or it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to ac- access your vulnerability in the future to write that course. Yeah, and I just believe like the self is such a slippery, yeah, ever changing like uh-huh. viscous. Yeah, weird, unknowable thing, uh-huh. and um, I think it's really dangerous to just be like, "This is who I am." And so well, I some do. Some people do that as, out of fear. Yeah, yeah, and just like needing a sense of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when I'm writing the play, I feel like it's going well when the character like does something that I didn't know they'd do, or that I would have never have predicted they'd do, or they say something totally out of character. And then I think in the end that can feel more like a real person because we do that all the time. So, so, th- so you let them do that on the page, and it's that yeah. that excitement of discovery yeah. that comes from writing. Yeah, that's the best. Like yeah. that's when I know it's going well. Is when I do feel like they're um, they're like these crazy figments of my imagination that have taken on a life of uh-huh. their own. Well, it's uh, let me set up the other play that I saw, which was John. This takes place at a bed and breakfast in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A couple comes and uh, they deal with it because there's so many comedic elements at work all the time in both of your plays that are that are it's a rare type of comedy it's very hard to do and it's not and it, it takes a, a, a weird confidence and commitment that you don't really see because y- you know the emotional depth of of what you do as a playwright it, it sort of relies on on i think you could traditionally call it the slow burn uh-huh yeah <laughs> you're, you're master of the slow burn and and you know and that's an amazing it's not i don't think you incorporate it as a device or you're conscious of it but because things get sparse you know dialogue wise when you do hit the closure you know whether it's funny or it's painful or it's, it's there there is this the the, the punchline is built up through such a, a, a deliberate and, and, and I don't want to use the word plotting, but a spacious kind of setup for a beat. Right. And, and in both shows, uh, in, in a couple of areas, you know, that payoff blows the whole fucking thing open and makes the experience that you've just had all the more relevant. It happens with Sam, you know, a couple of times in the flick right. where just something comes out of him where you're like, what is that? Right. That that's what he's been holding in, or that's what's really going on in that guy. And I I, I guess I'm just praising you, but but in the <laughs> no, it's really nice. <laughs> but uh, in in John, it's it's a much more complicated um, psychologically, and and I think um, more complicated emotionally, and there there are themes that are. are I'm not going to say more sophisticated, but your imagination has gone to a different place with that. Yeah. And the women characters, like there's this weird undercurrent through the whole thing. It just takes place in, in this bed and breakfast. And there's a young couple who's, you know, sort of in the last legs or trying to salvage their relationship. And he's a, a childhood civil war geek and she's along for the ride. And they go to this woman's bed and breakfast and it's, classically you know the intrusive sort of weird boundaryless bed and breakfast owner yeah and then she has a friend who's this uh you know slightly you know very intense angry blind woman who has her own story 
is weird with plays. I'm like, no spoilers, but yeah, I can't really describe it. That's what's happening. Well, and I think that the second you really spend your, this is something I spent years doing, like if you spend your time trying to figure out what other people are thinking, mm-hmm. you will go crazy. Mm-hmm. Like there is a kind of madness, and we were all doing it all the time, and that's why we're all kind of crazy. But like if you really go full throttle, like I'm going to spend all my time trying to figure out what the person I'm in a relationship is and is in with this thinking or I'm going to try to figure out what that person like you do there's like a real madness in that no it's horrible um, it's because you're usually wrong yeah you're there's no way to be right and, and then occasionally we like our, our intuitions are completely correct but but we don't know what people are thinking we might have like thoughts about what they're doing but that was something I wanted to that was like a form of madness that I wanted to tackle with like a character who actually was um, who had at one point in her life gone clinically insane because like i fucking get hung up on you know the poetry of what makes you know theater and specifically what you're doing and and specifically in that play compelling is that you loaded that one up you know the the flick was you know pretty sparse yeah and and you know what you you were really relying on revelations of the characters to sort of drive the emotions of that thing yeah with john you know you're setting it you know, at the you know the site of a massacre, yeah, a civil war massacre. You you have this environment in this bed and breakfast that suggests an almost mythological universe. Definitely, and I want I'd never done that before. That was like a weird challenge to myself, because um, I have always written very like sparse plays with very realistic settings. Mm-hmm. Um, very neutral spaces. Yeah. yeah. And I I did, and I also have written plays much more about men than women. Um, you know, I, I wrote a play once that was like an all-male cast, which was The Aliens, and I feel like the flick is actually really about the guys. And I love writing for men, actually. It's really fun. Um, but I was like, why am I not writing for more women? It was sort of a question I was asking myself, and I was getting really interested in um, just sort of... Uh, I was like a really weird sort of supernaturally obsessed kid. Like I really did feel like all my stuffed animals were alive and watching me and that crazy stuff was happening that I didn't understand and that my parents were atheists, but I was like, there's definitely someone up there controlling this. You know, I was just very, my mother always was like, you would be a religious fanatic if Mm -hmm. we'd let you, you Mm -hmm. know, like I built weird little shrines in my room and, I've just and I I started with this play. I really wanted to go back and investigate that because um, it's very like uncool. Like I felt like I was before I was sort of like writing a play that that um, with these sort of like cool dingy sets about like I I don't know that there's a kind of like dry kind of like witty coolness to what I was doing. A and, detachment. Yeah, and a kind of detachment. And I was like, I want to play where like a woman's getting her period the whole time. Yeah. And people are talking about going crazy and there's like dolls everywhere. And they're like, that lady might be an angel. And uh, people like talk about God. Because I don't feel like people, I don't know, I do feel, and maybe I'm crazy, but I do feel like we're all wandering around like wondering about God or if we don't call it God, like mm-hmm. the divine or mm-hmm. fate all the time and no one's talking about it. We don't know how to talk to each other about it. Like we don't know how to have those kinds of conversations. And so I did, I was like, I'm just going to write something that's like over the top, like femi, over the top, like just people like talking about God the whole time. There's going to be magic, but maybe like it's not real magic. Like who the fuck knows? Because I kind of feel like that's what life feels like to me anyway. 
Um, and the and one I, dude I, in there is going to be this sort of like emotionally stifled. Well, it's funny. That dude is like, if anyone in that play is me, it's that dude. Like, it's so funny. So much of me is in that guy and so much of my history and my life is in that guy. So it's always, so so I was like, I want to write a play that's like dealing with like, feminine archetypes uh-huh. but like i'm the dude like i'm i i'm gonna make myself the dude yeah um but yeah i also like got really into reading all these psychologists at the turn of the century who wrote about religion uh-huh. um and uh, i read this one thing one of the things that inspired the play was this um thing i read that like dread is the first step in religious development I'm there. Yeah, I'm on the precipice. That's right. That's and I was like, oh my god, because as a and because as a kid, because I wasn't religious and my parents weren't religious, I was like always scared and always creeped out. Like I always felt like there were ghosts and witches and like think uh, something like a hand was about to come out of the ground and grab me, and I never knew why. And I, I like until very recently, I was very confused about why I was such like a scared, sort of um, superstitious kid. And I feel like in a way, it was my in like a very secular household, it was my way of trying to access the divine, mm-hmm. like something bigger than myself. But sure. I feel like when you're a kid with atheist parents, like the way you do that is almost like through the spooky, that's like true. through it's horror, yeah. through demons, through horror movies, through scary movies. And that's your way of feeling like, oh man, maybe there's something bigger than me that I, that we can't totally figure out. Right. And mysterious and, 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 and unknowable. Yeah. The mysterious unknowable. Yeah. The, the sad thing about dread being the sort of precipice of spiritual awakening, it's also the precipice of a lifelong anxiety problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, how aware of you are of, of getting the laugh in comedy? I mean, is, do you know you're writing comedy? No, that's the thing. Like every time I, I like I now after every play goes up, I realize it's funny, but I, I think it's funny because I'm because I'm really bad at being intentionally funny. It's just like beyond me. Like I could never write for a sitcom. Really? really? Like I could never write for a, I think I'm funny, but I have to be totally relaxed and totally serious, actually. Like writing a play. To be funny. Yeah, I have to be alone and not trying to be funny and not thinking about anybody else. And then I. But I every time I fit, like with John, I was like, "This is my not funny play," and and then it's like getting all these like yucks in the when it goes up. It's it's weird, and then the laughter always surprises me. But fl- um, the flick you knew was funny where it was funny. No, I really I write then, it. Then who then? What is your relationship with Sam Gold then? Somebody is. Well, I always give him the play, and I'm always like, "This isn't funny. This is my not funny play." And then he's always like, "You're wrong. It's going to be funny." And then it is funny. I mean, it's. It's. I think it's not funny when I'm writing it, but then when we're rehearsing it, I am like hyper specific about timing. Like I drive everybody crazy. Like I'm like, if it's not funny, if you like, you know when it's supposed to be funny. Yeah, and I have my very specific sense of humor too. Like there's a kind of laugh that I hate. Like I don't just want laughs. And actually, you don't want um, punchline laughs. You don't want turn of phrase laughs. I don't want punchline laughs, and I don't want like. um, That's clever. Yeah, I right. don't want that's clever laughs. I want it to be about like I want it, I want every laugh to come from a place of like humiliation and recognition. Sure, the, the laughter like I say this on stage sometimes. I said there's no laughter like the laughter that should be crying. Yes, and my favorite kind of laughter is like too, like 
sometimes when the whole audience laughs raucously, yeah, I'm like, like I no, fucked I fucked up because like I everyone thinks they're supposed to laugh right, right now. Right. But my favorite is when like one lady in Can't the fifth row yeah. just like barks yeah, with yeah, laughter yeah, and everyone yeah. else is like, what is she laughing? Like I uh, like when it's like when I feel like it's individual people uh, having individual experiences. Uh, I don't really like the like 300 person crowd believe laugh. Believe me, I'm right there with you. I, I, I've designed my stand up so it's only for a few people. <laughs> That's the way I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, this is what makes what makes it great and why when people miss it because they're too worried about their watches is that you have uh, a very specific style and timing. Yeah. And well, you know how to honor it. Oh, well, I know. I do feel like I know exactly for good or bad, whether you like it or not, I feel like I know exactly how it should be. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I the thing I want it to be is totally like unexplainable. Mm-hmm. Like I want it, and I think one of the reasons I, I, you know I don't I'm not that crazy about the flick anymore. I mean I'm not that crazy about any play I've yeah, written okay. like yeah. three years later, yeah. and I'm not bashing on it. Right. But I think it like ties. It's like I started realizing my plays were a little too neat, and I felt like they were kind of like tying themselves up yeah. in a little bow at the end. Yeah. And with this new one, I really was like I want it to be a mess. Right. Like I'm going to be intentionally make this play like kind of in the end make no sense and make total sense at the same like I feel like half the people in the audience will be like that added up to nothing and half the people will be like that made total sense that was completely cohesive but I I really want to stop trying to explain anything to anybody well that's good well that just means that for you know for the fight you're fighting for theater and for yourself is to continue growing as an artist so that's good hopefully so are you finding that that the people you want to come to the shows are coming? No, not always, to be honest. I, uh, I feel more and more like I have an audience and like people, some people know my work and come see it, but I still feel like there's a lot of like rich old people mm. who come see it and then hate it. Like it's that weird thing where they buy all the tickets and then they fucking hate it and walk out halfway well, I think- through. Um, th- well, that's so funny because like, I think it's necessary what you're doing to keep fighting this fight. And it's it's great that you're getting the attention and the uh, awards and whatever because that will enable you to do that. I you will so. You will have to be reckoned with by those people. And if they don't want you, then fuck them. Then maybe the other people will come in. Yeah. But the fact that theater owners and the theater industry is, is you know, uh, trying to accommodate them by apologizing for you is – fucking heinous and that's not what art is about so i think that i think the pulitzer is going to buy you a few more plays that's good and and you know the theater i'm working at where you saw john has this cool initiative where they only charge 25 dollars per ticket which just makes me feel better about doing theater in general like i always felt weird doing a play somewhere where they charge like 70 dollars. i was like how am i how are you going to get young high school students to come see this mm-hmm. and signature my next Two plays are going to be there, and all the tickets are $25. Oh, great. And that's just like a game changer. Right. That's great. So you cut yeah. that deal, and it's just a matter of getting the word out. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now let's come back to Scott Rudin and, and, and Faustian deals. Now, do you want to write movies? So I've written movies. That's how I've like gotten my health insurance since 2008. I okay. was just like a hired. They'd be like, we need rom-com about this you know you're a girl right no no you're a girl write a rom-com you know and so this is how they ruin playwrights yes this is how they ruin playwrights and then i actually had a total breakdown a few Mm. years ago and i was like i can't do this anymore like it's paying my bills but i'm so unhappy and i'm doing a terrible job like i'm not actually good at right writing bad movies 
And um, I actually had a conversation. So you were doing rewrites. I was, um, I was actually doing like someone would have an, you know, that thing where they're like, we need someone to write a movie based on this property we have or for this a, property. Yeah. yeah, we like bought this right. foreign movie and we need you to do it. You know, blah blah blah. Um, but then I had a whole thing where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I quit. Like I'm just gonna leave the industry. And this is why Scott Rudin is amazing. I had a meeting with him, and he was like, Why don't you want to write movies anymore? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Because I'm done. Cause I write shit, they hate it. I then I get fired off the job. Like I'm miserable. I have to find another way to do this. And he was like, "Well, if you could do anything in the movies, what would you do?" And I was like, "Well, I'd write and direct my like own weird movie where I had total control, mm-hmm. and I didn't have to like outline it beforehand for a bunch of dippy people." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Great, why don't you do that for me?" <laughs> And I was like, what? Well, I'm just, you know, and then it is my like self. I was like, but I'm just like this young woman. Like uh-huh. who would hire me to do, you uh-huh. know? And he was like, well, you should have told me. Like, I didn't know you were interested in directing. Great. Like, I'll pay you to write a script and you can be attached as director. Write whatever you want. You don't have to tell me what it is. Like, just go do it. Uh-huh. Shut up, uh-huh. you know? Are you and doing it? Yeah. Oh, good. How's so it coming? That's why he's cool. I mean, I what I've written so far, I hate, but I'm gonna try to get there. Like, I really, really do wanna. I am um, knowing I can direct it is like a game changer because I am so hyper specific about everything that screenwriting isn't a good profession for me unless right. I'm directing it. Well, this sounds exciting. So he's a he's. It's great. He's got Thank my loyalty for that one. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Well. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. It's nice talking. Congratulations to you. To you. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Um, Are we good now? Yeah, we're good. That's it. That's our show. What an amazing talk I had with her. I love her. I love her work. You should go see her plays if you can. You should see more theater in general. I should see more theater in general. Oh, you hear that familiar buzz? I had to warm up the dirty old man to do my ending licks. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on the mailing list. Check the calendar. Check uh, the uh, episode guides. Get hooked up with Howl.fm. Over there, get the Howl app so you can get that WTF archive. Straight telly into the dirty old man.